Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. In this particular chapter, in Luke chapter 18, Luke the Evangelist records two parables of our Lord Jesus Christ, one after the other, first 14 verses. The first parable is the parable of the woman and the judge. The second parable is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax gatherer or the publican. I don't have time to speak on both of them. I would like to spend time speaking about the second parable and the second parable, parable of the parable and a publican or a Pharisee and a publican. But I will mention couple of things, few things from the first parable, because it seems that these two parables were said by our Lord Jesus Christ at the same time, following one the other, for a reason that we may learn, because he's bringing in a point. When we look at the parable of the first parable of the woman and the judge, the widow, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ presses on, us, uh, presses on us the need of persistency. You notice that the woman was persistent. She had an adversary who was after her, who was attacking her, who was bringing her constantly to court, who was accusing her, and therefore she had to defend herself, but it wasn't enough to go one time. She continued persistently to come before the judge in order that she may be vindicated. And it is a, it is a, uh, a great teaching to us from the Lord that we ourselves have an adversary. Apostle writes to us that our adversary is the devil, and he continually attacks us. Word of God says, that this adversary is a relentlessly pursuing his desire, and he's accusing us day and night. Makes no difference what you and I did. Makes no difference whether it's right or wrong. But Satan is accusing us before God day and night. And what he's really doing is he's seeking permission from God to attack his people, to be able to buffet them, to be able to afflict them, we have examples in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, we see example of Job. How Satan came to God, and he asked permission to be able to attack him. But remember, he has no permission, or he has no access to us. He cannot molest a child of God or a saint of God apart from God's approval. And he specifically told God, remove your hedge of protection from around him that I may afflict him. And the Lord allowed it. Now the Lord is in control of all things. Every job he allowed for Satan to attack his family, his children were killed, to attack him materially, all his positions were gone, were taken, and then also to attack him physically, bodily, bodily harm. They did boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. In the New Testament, we have an example of Peter. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ said about Peter, or to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired 
In other words, he has asked permission to sift you like wheat, to test you. And it was granted to him. But I pray that your fate would not fail. We see the same thing in the life of Apostle Paul. How Satan was given permission to buffet him, to wound him, to give him a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what kind of illness this was, but it was very painful to the point that Apostle came scripturally to the Lord. He says, three times I came, asking that the Lord would remove the thorn in the flesh, and the Lord would not. He says, my grace is sufficient. In other words, I will give you help. I will support you. But I will not remove the thorn. And we know that each one of these was, were useful, whether it was for Job, whether it was for Peter, whether it was for Apostle Paul, whether it was for countless of his other saints, that the Lord allows Satan certain access and certain deeds that he would do unto us. But it, all, it is all under his control. But here the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching us and telling us, just like this adversary of this widow, continuously, continually, relentlessly came and attacked the woman. She herself had to relentlessly, she herself persistently had to come before the judge. And the Lord Jesus Christ is saying the same thing to us, that we ourselves are to continuously come through the throne of grace, asking for help, asking to be given justice from our enemy, from our adversary, asking to be vindicated. And even though the scripture here, does not mention the spiritual condition of the petition of the widow. It doesn't say whether she was right or righteous or unrighteous. It doesn't say whether she was a child of God or not. But we do see the Lord Jesus Christ adding. And he does say, he makes it very clear that God vindicates his elect, his own. In other words, his children have access to him for help, for grace in a time of need. Unrepentant sinners have no right to receive this kind of help from God because the sin still separates them from God. When we look at this parable that starts at verse 9 of chapter 18, it is the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. But you notice that this parable will touch upon moral standing of the petitioner. We have two men, one a Pharisee, elite, religious elite of the nation of Israel. And the other one, a publican, the lowest of the low. He was a Jew who was a tax gatherer for the Romans. And these men had a uh, reputation of low morality and high vice. They were known to have been sinners. Everybody knew about that. So, but what we have here, we have turning tables here. We have pride, arrogance, and exaltation from one, from the religious elite, and then we have meekness, humility, and contrition from the sinner, from the public, and from the tax gatherer. Now, there are a couple of lessons that we can learn from this particular parable, but I believe the primary lesson that we can learn is justification. Because the Lord Jesus Christ specifically says, in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, and the other one did not. So justification, or how is one justified before God, is the primary lesson. Is it by outward life that we think is righteous? 
Even though we might be fully convicted in our own hearts that it is right, that we are righteous, that we are without sin, is it the, my attitude that I am righteous? Is this what justifies me? Or is it humility, humbleness, meekness, and really the mercy of God? But there's another lesson to be learned here. This is a secondary lesson. It is acceptance by God or approach to God. How do we approach God? So whether it's a saint or sinner, there is a lesson for each one of us here. How do we approach God? Do we approach him as the Pharisee did? Just because we are children of God? Because we are born again? Do we just have this kind of accent that says, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't have to worry about anything whatsoever. I can just approach the way I am. In other words, in my pride, in my, my, in my exaltation, I can look down on people. Because you notice what the Lord Jesus Christ, or what it said here in verse 9. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Is it right for us to view others with contempt? And if we do so, if we exalt ourselves this way, and this is easy to do, are we accepted by God? Are our petitions accepted by God? So in one sense, the lesson can be applied specifically to salvation. And that's a primary lesson, I believe. But on the other hand, it can be applied to a believer in his approach to God in prayer. Because we do know that God opposes the proud. And this was written to us by James. God opposes, or really, uh, the word is resists. And this oppose or resist word is a strong word when someone prepares himself as for battle against someone else. So God opposes or readies himself as for battle, turn his face against those who are proud, who are exalted. But on the other hand, he gives grace to those who are humble. No one can approach God for any reason in self-confidence, in pride, and in arrogance. But God accepts both the sinner and the saint in their humility. The sinner unto salvation and the saint in order for his petitions to be heard. This parable illustrates those who trust in themselves for righteousness, as it says in verse 9. Sinner who thinks that he can approach God apart from Christ, apart from justification, just because he can. And likewise, a sinner who realizes his own sin, in need of mercy of God unto salvation. A sinner we shall see who sees himself as God sees him is a sinner as poor and wretched, as miserable as one without hope in this world without God. And he's need of mercy of God in order to be saved. It also speaks of a believer who is proud and arrogant and exalts himself above others. But also a believer who has no confidence in the flesh. The one who realizes that he is what he is simply by the grace of God. And he needs God's help, God's grace. That he only stands because of God's help, God's mercy. Otherwise he'll fall. He'll be no different than a publican in one sense, falling into sin. So he realizes his need. In either case, one has nothing to boast of, but rather to rely on the mercy of God. It is also a vital lesson, lest anyone think they can petition the Holy One in their sins. And this is the case of many unrepentant sinners who think, who think 
that they can pray and be heard. I don't know if you ever heard this. People who have no relationship with God. People who are unrepented, unconverted. People of this world who don't care about Christ, who have rejected Christ, yet they still say, we pray. Have you heard that? It says, we will pray for you. Politicians are very, very notorious of saying this. Oh, they're in our prayers. Every time something happens, they're in our prayers. Well, you know, the Word of God says that when a, when a non-godly person prays, that it is a sin unto him. Even his prayer is a sin, Psalm 109. And God specifically says, what, what right do you have to even take my covenant upon your lips when you do injustice and iniquity? Now, we do see in the scriptures, and I have experienced this talking to other people, that sometimes God does hear someone who is unconverted. Remember Cornelius, prime example. He was a man, he was not a Jew, and he was not a Christian. He was a Gentile, but he was seeking to know the Almighty God, the one true God of Israel. And God sent an angel to him, and he says, your prayers and your alms have been accepted before God. That's very, very interesting, isn't it? His prayers, his petitions were accepted. His alms, his his money that he gave, his charitable contributions were accepted by God. But then God sent him an angel for a reason, that he may show him the way unto salvation. And I've spoken to people who, who were praying before their salvation, and God did hear their prayer about various things, but it was simply to lead them closer to himself, to reveal himself to them, and ultimately they accepted Christ as their Savior. So yes, God can do this, and God does this for a reason. But those who have rejected Christ, those who don't think that they need Christ unto salvation, that they don't need Christ to be justified before God, to those he does not hear. The only prayer he hears from them is, O oh God, be merciful unto me, a sinner, is unto salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ specifically addresses this issue in previous parable when he addresses the relationship between God and the petitioner, you notice his own elect. Those who have relationship with the living God. Now, we need to be careful ourselves, those who are born again, those who are children of God. Because common misconception is that all those who are born again, that, are, that their prayers are automatically heard. And answered. Well, that's not what I found in the scriptures, and I've been reading scriptures for many years. And that's not what I found from my own experience either. The Lord Jesus Christ specifically said in John 15 that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask for whatever you will, and it will be given unto you. John, the beloved disciple, says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, if there was a period behind this statement, then we would say, you know, this is a definite statement. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. But he goes on. He says, why? Because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing to him. In other words, things which are approved of him. How do we know what's approved and what's not approved by him? Well, we do have the scriptures, don't we? 
And this is why it's so important to read the scriptures, more to study the scriptures, and then to pray over the scriptures and allow the Spirit of God to lead us into his truth, that we may lead this kind of life, live the life that is approved by him, pleasing to him. And then, yes, this, this promise, ask whatever you will, it will be given to you. Then a promise will be true to us as well. But otherwise, uh, we have to go back to John. If there's sin in our lives, we have to go to 1 John chapter 1. And we need to confess our sins. And he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. Now, our, uh, when we do confess our sins, those of us who are born again, it is not unto relationship. We already have a relationship with the living God. It is unto fellowship to restore that fellowship which has been broken by sin. Well, let's get back to this, uh, get to this parable. So chapter 18, verse 9 says, And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Here's a man who was praying to himself. The Pharisee outwardly spoke to God, but really, in, in reality, he prayed with himself. And the original language in the Greek, my understanding is exactly this. And he prayed with himself, not by himself, not somehow to himself, but with himself. This man had no audience. God was not in his audience. He was his own audience. His prayer was never heard, never accepted by God. And this kind of prayer does not reach God. Why does not reach God? Why is it? Well, this man has no sense of sin. None whatsoever. This man is perfect. What does God say about human heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? This man's heart deceived him that he was perfect, that there was absolutely nothing wrong with him, nothing at all. This man was content with his outward spiritual state. And this man stood on his own merits. He relied on his good works, outward works, as his right to be heard by God, as if God somehow owed him something. Because I do these outward things, God owes me. In other words, God will hear me. He took it for granted. He took it for granted because he was a Jew, and we'll get into this a little bit later, because he was a Jew, because he was an Israelite, because he was from the seed of Abraham, that he had this right, and God will hear him. Now, he spoke only of his own works. Now look at his works. His works were right in themselves. This man abstained from extortion. He abstained from injustice. He abstained from adultery or sexual immorality. And this man likewise abstained from official corruption, something that the other person could not say. I mean, 
if you look at all these things, this was the lifestyle, and the, this was the characteristic of publicans, tax gatherers. Yet this man abstained from all of these. You know, sad thing to say that not all Christians can say with a clear conscience what this man said. Now some may say, now hold on a second, this man was a Pharisee, he was a hypocrite. Well, you know, who's telling the parable? The searcher of hearts, right? Don't you think he would have known? No, this man did exactly what he said he did. This man was righteous in what he said he did. This man actually did abstain from extortion, from injustice, from sexual immorality, and from official corruption, and he gave money to God, and he did fast. This man, he might have been a, a hypocrite in anything else that he might have done or said, but not in these things. Restraint from bodily appetites. And recognition of God, God's right over our money. These are virtues that really, it is, it is sad, but many of us, many of people of God are deficient in. Then why? Why were his deeds invalidated by God? Well, this man did not see his own sin. I mentioned that already. He did not, not see his own pride. He did not see his own hatred and contempt for the other person. He says, not or, or even like this publican or this tax gatherer, gatherer. This man did not have a relationship with God. This man compares himself with other men. You know how easy it is to compare ourselves with other people? Look what he says. Go, oh God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, not even this man standing next to me. You know, whether we like it or not, how often is it, whether it's in sports, whether it's in politics, whether it's in business, whether it's at work, makes no difference where or religiously we compare ourselves to other people. It is so easy to do. Why? Because I see you, and I know you to a point. And it is easy for me to look at you and say, you know what, I'm better than you in this or that. I'm better than you in prayer, public prayer. I'm better than you in speaking. I'm better than you in service. I come here more often than you do. I do more for the Lord than you do. Sometimes we don't want to say that, or we don't even say it, but we think it. We just look at someone, and we can always find somebody that's, that we can exalt ourselves over. It is so easy to do that we find somebody that's not as good as us in anything that we do. Of course, we find somebody that's bigger there, higher than us, better than us in things, but we don't compare ourselves to those people. But it's easier to step on somebody else. But every time we think like this, we have to understand, this is pride, this is exaltation. This is what God does not like, us to compare ourselves with men. Why? Well, what was God's standard? Am I God's standard? Is God going to be judging mankind according to Sam Lohman? I thank God not. What is God's standard? Well, first of all, it's the word of God. And secondly, it's the Lord Jesus Christ because he kept the law. He kept the word of God. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the word of God. He did everything that God wanted him to do. He did everything that the law required of him. And then he has given us commandments and he lived those commandments out before he gave them to us. So if we are to compare ourselves, we need to compare ourselves to him. Now, when was the last time you compared yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ? 
And how many of us, if we ever do, says, you know what, I'm about the same as he was. Or maybe I'm a little bit better than he was. Well, perish the thought. Heaven forbid, not one of us would make it. So we need to compare ourselves to the scriptures. And this is why, again, we need to know the scriptures and study the scriptures. If we do not study the scriptures and read the scriptures and pray over the scriptures, how can we compare ourselves to the scriptures? How do we know what is God's standard for my life? You see, this man looked at other people, and he says, this is the standard, and I have excelled over this standard. I am better than most. I am better than everybody that I see, as a matter of fact. He says, I thank thee, God, I am not like other people. So he looked at other people, and we can do the same thing. We can look at some of us and say, you know what, so-and-so doesn't come to the meeting often. And so-and-so doesn't show up for prayer meeting and Bible study. And so-and-so doesn't serve. And so-and-so doesn't have such knowledge. It is easy to do so. But next time we are tempted to do so, we need to compare ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and see how far we get. So this man's problem was that he compared himself to other men instead of God's perfection, God's standard, which was his law, his full law. Not just, not just a few things from the scriptures, his full law. This man does not have a relationship with God. He assumes he did. Yet, he's still in his sins. He's still a stranger. He's still a foreigner to God. He's still an alien, even though he's an Israelite from the line of Abraham from the seed of Abraham, but he is not a child of Abraham. Two different things. Remember in John chapter 8, the Pharisees were arguing with the Lord, and they were telling him, they said, well, we are Abraham's descendants. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, I understand, I know that you are Abraham's seed. And then they said, Abraham is our father. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ drew the line. And says, if, You are Abraham's children. If Abraham was your father, you would do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, man who has told you the truth, something that Abraham would not do. You are of your father, the devil. This man was not a child of Abraham. Why was that? He did not walk in the footsteps in the way of Abraham. You know, We can't use our ancestry. We can't use our pedigree. We can't use our family line to have a relationship with God. A relationship with God cannot be earned, cannot be purchased, cannot be worked for. Let me give an example. Other religions, for instance, Islam. If a child is born to a Muslim parents, he's automatically a Muslim. If a child is born to a Hindu parents, he's a Hindu. But relationship with God is different. It needs new birth. This relationship can only be entered by mercy and grace of God through regeneration. What did uh, the Lord Jesus Christ tell Nicodemus? If you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, if you want to enjoy the kingdom of God, if you want to understand spiritual things, kingdom of God, you must be born 
again. What does Apostle Paul tell us? He saved us not according to the deeds which we have done in righteousness, but rather according to his mercy by washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Now, you might say, now hold on a second. We're talking about before Christ died and rose from the dead. How could the man be regenerate? How could the man be born again? How could the man receive his relationship with God through the new birth? He was an Israelite of old, and that's true. So how did they become people of God in a spiritual sense? We know from the scriptures that not all of them were children of Abraham. We can see this in a book of Romans as well, as Apostle Paul explains. They were all from the seed of Abraham, from the loins of Abraham, according to the flesh. But they were not all children of Abraham. Have you ever heard the phrase that we find in the Old Testament, circumcision of the heart? This was told to the nation of Israel all the way from the time that they were in the wilderness. Circumcised the foreskin of your heart, or circumcised your heart, or you of uncircumcised hearts. Stephen told this to Sanhedrin. You are of uncircumcised heart. Always, always rejecting the Holy Spirit, just like your fathers did. So a person in the Old Testament received relationship or came into relationship with God through a circumcision of his heart. What does that mean? Well, it, really, it was not through religious rituals. It was not through physical circumcision. It was not through outward observances, just because he did certain things that God told him to do. It was not through outward faith, but rather a heart. A heart that was set apart in love, in devotion, in obedience, and in faith to God. What does that mean? Well, what is the first, uh, first commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And what is the second commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord, um, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what did Lord Jesus Christ say about these two? Then on these two hangs the whole law and the prophets. So is it possible for a person to love God with all his heart and not love his neighbor? John tells us, he says, how can you say that you love God whom you have not seen? Yet you hate your neighbor whom you do see. This man had contempt and hatred for his neighbor. This man did, did not have circumcised heart. This man was not a child of Abraham. This man did not walk in the footsteps of Abraham. Now, what about the other person? What about the tax gatherer? Verse 13, but the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The tax gatherer realized this. He knew that he had no relationship with God, even though he was from the stock of Abraham. He was an Israelite just like the other guy, but he recognizes that he is not. There's no relation between him and God. And therefore, he comes as a sinner to God, humble in his own eyes because of his guilt, because of his, 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 his conduct, beating his breast, which was a sign of shame. Oh, God, be merciful unto me. And beating his breast because of his lifestyle. He knew his own lifestyle. He knew his own conduct. He knew his own sin. And then he cries out, and he, and he casts himself upon divine mercy. And he says, oh God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. 
But you know what? That word merciful is not found in the original. He didn't say, oh God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. He says, oh God, be propitiated unto me, a sinner. Pro what is propitiated? It's, that's a word that we don't use anymore. It's a, real, it's a scriptural word. But it was used by them in the Old Testament. See, to be propitiated is more than to be merciful. It means to be reconciled. It means to make end of hostilities. But then it means one more step. It means to satisfy just wrath of God's law. It means all of these. All in one word. Be propitiated. You see, God's law has to be satisfied. There's only three ways that God's law can be satisfied that we find in the scriptures. Number one, a perfect life. If a person leads a perfect life, then he satisfied the requirements of the law. Now, who can say that they live perfectly? Well, this man, besides this man here, the, the Pharisee, who else can say that they live perfectly? But what if God says that no one did? God looked down from heaven to see if there were any righteous. And what is this? Uh, what did he find in his investigation? He says, there are none who are righteous. No, not one. In other words, all of us have come short. All of us have sinned. We have come short of that mark of righteousness. So not one of us is perfect. So it, it eliminates this one way that the law can be satisfied. So now there's only two other ways that the law can be satisfied. Number one is penalty. Cursed is everyone who does not keep everything that's written in the law of, in the book of this law. So penalty, and what is penalty of sin? What is wages of sin? Word of God says it's death. Just physical death? No. Eternal damnation. Eternal separation from the living God. So if someone was to break the law, the law still must be satisfied. And all of us were breakers of the law. So the only way the law can be satisfied two different ways. Number one is for us to pay that penalty. For us to be judged by God eternally. Because we have sinned against infinite God. So punishment must be infinite as well. It is into, in the lake of fire. Eternal damnation. But then there's one more way by which the law can be satisfied. God approved substitute. In the Old Testament, these were sacrifices, animal sacrifices. But it had to be the way that God approved it. Remember Cain? He brought his own kind of sacrifice. And it was not accepted. So it has to be approved by God. It's not that who Muhammad says or who Hare Krishna says. No, no. It's who God approves. In the Old Testament, God approved certain sacrifices which would take place of the sinner. Today, God only approved of one, because all those other sacrifices in the Old Testament who looked forward were foreshadows of Christ. There's only one sacrifice which God accepts today. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one substitute. And therefore, propitiation discloses the basis in law by which mercy can be extended. You see, many people seem to think that God is, since God is love, that he can be merciful for any reason whatsoever, that he can just forgive. Well, see, these kinds of people don't know God. 
And what they're doing is that they're painting God with the paintbrush of their own imagination how they would like to see him. And they're minimizing his righteousness and his holiness and his justice. Yes, God is merciful and God is loving. But God is also righteous and God is also just. And he cannot overlook sin for the sake of mercy. So God will show mercy to those who trust in God's substitute, God's approved substitute. Now, wait a minute now. He says, now how did this man, we don't see that he brought a sacrifice, do we? No. Look at verse 10. Two men went into the temple to pray. Not one of those brought a sacrifice. We can understand the Pharisee. He didn't need to bring a sacrifice sacrifice because he was perfect, in his own eyes at least, in his own heart. So he didn't have to bring anything. How about the, the other man? He didn't bring a sacrifice, did he? Well, all Christ's hearers, listeners, knew that the man was standing where? Where would you be standing if you entered into the temple, through that front door? And there were guards, remember, there were guards on either side, uh, watching the temple, watching the entrance. And there was only so far a regular Israelite to, could come. He was standing before altar of atonement. Between him and the sanctuary of God was that altar. That's as far as he got to go. Now, what was on that altar perpetually? It was an ever-burning fire. What was it consuming? The morning and evening sacrifice. Every morning and every evening, they had to offer two-year-old lamb on that altar. And this would burn perpetually. Fire was never taken off of this altar. It was burning always. This way they had access any time and every time, whether it was midnight, whether it was two in the morning, whether it was one o'clock in the afternoon. They had access to God because of that sacrifice, because of that lamb, because of that substitute. Remember even Daniel prayed during the time of the evening sacrifice and he was confessing the sin of Israel during that time. Because this was already prepared, this innocent substitute was offered for the benefit of the repentant sinner. This was God's provision for anyone and everyone who would come and he would ask forgiveness without him bringing a lamb. Now, why did this have such atoning power? Simply because God is the one who ordered it. It is he who approved it. And this man believed it. So he trusted in God's provision. Be propitiated, carried with it, the acknowledgement of guilt, as well as appeal for pardon. But appeal for pardon was on the basis, on the ground, that the victim has borne the guilt and the doom of the sinner. This is why this man could come. Because that Morning and evening sacrifice were on that altar. And he looked at them. And he looked at himself. And he says, oh God, be propitiated unto me, the sinner, on the basis of those victims that were slain on my behalf. How did he know this? What was the job of the, uh, of the priests in the Old Testament? To teach the people. Every Israelite, male Israel, I had to come also to Israel, to uh, Jerusalem, on certain feasts. 
to show himself before the Lord. And there the law was read, and it was explained. Every Israelite knew what these two lambs were for, morning and evening sacrifice. Dear saints, this is why you and I preach Christ, but Christ crucified, not apart from the cross. Just like every Israelite knew for a fact that there was sacrifice for him, there was atonement for him, there was a substitute for him on that altar, ever-burning altar. That's why you and I preach Christ crucified, that all the world may know that there is only one way, and that the way has been provided by God through Christ. There is no other way. If that man went into the temple, and he tried to break through gold to go into the holiest of holies, he would have been killed by those priests. And if he somehow got through them, he would have been killed by God. No one entered into the holiest of holies apart from the high priest in the Old Testament. No one enters unto God. No one comes unto God even today. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is no other way. There is no way to circumvent the cross. So that, this is why we preach the cross. We preach Christ and Him crucified. We cannot preach the gospel apart from Christ and the cross. The cross is the altar, dear saints. Just like that altar had those victims on it, the cross had Christ crucified, but He's risen now. But it's still a sinner must come to the cross and acknowledge his sin and acknowledge God's provision for sin, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. The tax gatherer felt his guilt. He confessed his sinfulness and he relied on the atoning grace. He appealed for pardon and he went down to his house justified. The searcher of hearts, the judge of all the earth, declares him to be just, to be righteous in the law. What do we see here? He was acquitted of his guilt. And he was discharged from the lost penalty. And we see present and immediate salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year. Not until I get better. When does salvation come? When does justification come? Here's a man who was a sinner. This man could not say that he abstained from anything. This man was a picture of vice and ungodliness and immorality. Yet he comes to God and he trusts in God's sacrifice. He takes God at his word. And what happens? He is justified immediately. He goes to his house happy, free. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. This is written to us who are born again. But it is just as true with the unsaved. If he confesses his sin, owns his sin, and confesses it. And then faith is exercised in God's provision for sin. Then he's justified. And there are people out there. I don't know if there are any here today. If you think that somehow your works will get you to heaven. That somehow your works will, will circumvent anything else. We have a beautiful picture here of a Pharisee. And you can compare yourself and your outward righteousness to his. And I doubt whether or not you're going to pass. This man will probably outshine you when it comes to outward righteousness. So if you think that your works may get you to heaven, you will have a rude awakening. If you think that somehow God at the end will show you mercy because of your good looks, of anything else, again you will be sorely disappointed. He will not. He cannot. The only way is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because unless Christ is accepted as a substitute, 
the penalty must be borne by you. There's no other way to satisfy God's law. And God's law is his word. It is him. And therefore he cannot and he will not. This is why he provided, prepared a substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, today he is your provision if you're not saved yet. But you can make him your substitute by simply trusting as this man did. He confessed this and says, Oh God, be propitiated unto me a sinner. Trusting in God's provision as a substitute. And you too will go home justified, happy, and free. May the Lord bless his word. Our loving God and our Heavenly Father, we are thankful and grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, each one of us have come short of the glory of God. Each one of us have sinned. There is no one, no righteous, not one. But Father, we do give thee thanks that even though not one of us is righteous, but thou hast provided salvation through thy beloved Son, through our Lord Jesus Christ, that in him we have our substitute. In him we have salvation. In him is the way to thyself. In him is the way of happiness and justification. Heavenly Father, help us to proclaim this good news of salvation, Christ and him crucified, to all the world, all those around us, that the whole world may know that there is a way, but then there is only one way, not many ways, only one way. And we give you thanks for that way, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.